Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Professor of Mathematics, Edric Goins, who specializes in number theory and algebraic geometry. Welcome, Edric. Glad to have you with us here in, here in cyberspace. <laughs> uh, how are you adjusting to life here in the time of quarantine? Um, the, the best I can. Um, I can't really say that things are horrible. Probably, if anything, I really miss talking with the students one-on-one, -on -one, you know, being able to see their faces. But I think I'm surviving with the new adjustment to classes. Edra, you grew up in LA. Um, tell us a little bit about your early years and did you always gravitate toward math or how did you find your way towards mathematics? Um, no, I wasn't always into mathematics. I was actually really big into science. Actually being a scientist was always one of my dreams. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, not too far away from Inglewood. And actually every day I would see the airplanes flying over going to LAX. So I wasn't so much interested in the whole thing of like traveling to other countries or kind of wondering where these planes were going. I was more interested in how the planes worked. So I mean, literally <laughs> every day seeing the planes fly over, I would always wonder, how are they still up there in the sky? How does flight work? What's really happening with these engines? Um, mm -hmm. There was one time when my mom, actually my father, was really worried about me kind of being like too much of a nerd and maybe he wanted me to get out and be more social. So they put me on the flag football team. And I remember one day being out there on the field and an airplane flew over and it was very loud. I was completely fascinated by this plane falling over. I didn't know during all of this time that there was a play in motion, people <laughs> running in the field, the coach was yelling at me. I had absolutely no idea until I looked around me and thought that nobody was there. So like that, yeah. that's kind of a typical thing that, that would happen. Yeah. Um, so I did grow up there in, in South LA. Um, almost all of my schools where I'd say 99% black, all the students were black, all of the teachers were black. Um, and I would say that, that I really grew up with a very strong sense of community. A lot of the people that I was around were really big into helping out with others. It was always about kind of learning about black history in the classroom, figuring out what you could do to help out with the community. Uh, Maxine Waters, who I think is very big now, she was my congresswoman growing up. So, I mean, just kind of that whole thing of really doing for community, helping out others was always something that that I was really big and, you know, really big into and something that, that I just was instilled in me from a very young age. Um, still, I wanted to be a scientist and I really wanted to learn about how the world around me worked. Um, I can't say that I went to any fancy private schools or that I had any fancy tutors. I definitely was um, a product of the public school system there out of Los Angeles Unified School District. And I'm still very proud of that. But I didn't really go to the best schools in the city. Um, so I feel very fortunate in that I had a lot of friends and also a lot of teachers who really saw how interested I was in science. And even though the classes maybe weren't the best classes in the school district, I still had a lot of teachers who were very, very encouraging of me. Um, I remember at one point there at the high school that I went to, you know, it was certainly one of the worst in the city. And of course, we had a lot of problems with gangs and shootings that happened um, either on campus or just outside of campus. There was one gang member in particular 
who came up to me one day and he said, you know, at first I thought, you know, here it is, and I'm probably going to get harassed by this guy. He said, no, you are one of the best and brightest of our community and of our generation. So if anybody ever messes with you, let me know. I'll take care of it. <laughs> wow. Like, like just that whole thing of just knowing that, that I'm always going to be protected, that people are very proud of me. You know, I, I just really can't say enough. You know, I really felt like growing up in South Central LA in the 80s was for me, you know, one, one of the best experiences. Now, you were the you were the first student from your high school to attend Caltech, is that right? And That's, so why did you pick Caltech and, and what was your experience like there? Well, I kind of came to Caltech from, from a slightly roundabout direction. Um, growing up in LA, you know, of course, you know about earthquakes. And if you know about earthquakes, you're going to hear about it from Caltech. And the evening news <laughs> yeah. would always say things like, the scientists at Caltech said that the recent earthquake was a 6.5. And so, you know, if you're growing up in LA, hearing about earthquakes, everybody knows about Caltech because of the earthquakes. But not many people knew about Caltech for either its academics or for the science that they do. So I remember hearing about Caltech from a very uh, um, early age. In addition to that, I was fortunate in that I had my parents, godparents, who essentially were my godparents, we would make it a point that after church on Sundays, we would all get together so in the car and we would drive to Pasadena. And Pasadena was where Caltech is located. So really almost every Sunday, it's kind of like, you know, the way that the family would get together, we would drive to Pasadena, we would go have dinner at a cafeteria there called Beatles Cafeteria. And I would always ask at the end, can we just drive past this place called Caltech? So I knew where it was. I knew from the news in a sense what it was but I didn't really know what happened on campus. So I knew from a very early age, I would say probably from about maybe age 15 or so, the Caltech was my number one choice. It, it was where I really wanted to go. I didn't really, really know much about like the Ivy League colleges or even about the University of California system, but I knew Caltech was where I wanted to go. So my senior year, I was fortunate enough to be one of the best students in all of Los Angeles Unified School District. And I knew I wanted to go into science. So at the time, I had applied, at least wanted to apply to one of two schools. It was either going to be Caltech or MIT. I actually sent off a request for an application from MIT. This is before the internet, so you couldn't really go online and do all this stuff with like, you know, the common applications. You really had to write a letter or send a postcard to get the application. So I sent a postcard to MIT, never heard back. Never heard back, so I never wow. got an application. So I never applied to, to MIT. But, their loss. Yeah, yeah, definitely it's their loss. <laughs> um, but I got an application in the mail from Caltech. I didn't request one. It just appeared one day. Come to find out later, there actually was um, a black staff member who worked at Caltech named Lee Brown. And he made it a point to search out in the country the top black students. And once he found out who they were, he would look them up, he would get their address, he would send them an application in the mail. So I got an application because there was a black staff member at Caltech who actually knew who I was. I didn't even know anything about this guy, but he knew who I was and he sent me an application. So that's one of the reasons why I applied to Caltech. You know, of course, I definitely knew about it. It was certainly my, my number one school, but just the fact that I got the application, you know, that, that put it even more over the top. 
And of course, it probably didn't hurt that I didn't even get an application from, from MIT at all. Um, kind of on the flip side, and I wonder if, if a lot of students listening to this podcast know about this too. You know, you, you mentioned that my high school, that I was the first person to get admitted to Caltech. I'm pretty sure I was the first person, probably even to this day, the only person to even apply to Caltech. So I was a senior starting in 1989. I graduated in 1990. And I, of course, everyone on campus knew I was big into science, wanted to go to Caltech. I was completely fascinated by this place. And so, of course, I told my high school counselor that I was going to apply to two places. It was going to be Caltech and MIT. Well, my high school counselor looked at me and said, um, you know, Caltech is a really difficult place to get into. And I said, well, yeah, I, I understand this. So she said, well, maybe you should think about applying to some other places when you don't get in. You know, it wasn't really a matter of if, it was more a matter of, well, don't set your hopes up too high. It probably won't happen. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be sympathetic to her because I understood there were something like um, 650 people who graduated from my high school every year. I would say only maybe the top 100 even applied to college, which meant Another 500 people didn't even think about going to college. And of those 100 that she saw going to college every year, the vast majority would end up going to either a school there in the UC system or the Cal State system. There might even be a handful of others that will go to some of the HBCUs, these historically black colleges, somewhere in the South. So for her to even know somebody who was even thinking of applying to Caltech, let alone was cocky enough to say that he was going to go there, you know, I know that for her, it was not even something that was even in her worldview. So it was I, beyond I, her imagination, I guess. Yeah, it, I think it was. I think it was beyond her imagination. So she said, um, fine, go ahead and apply to Caltech, but but please apply to maybe a safe school. So she, she kind of forced me to apply to USC. So I said, fine, I'll apply to USC. You know, I did get in, but, but I still joke to people that really there were only I'd say three places I applied to and I got into. Um, USC was one, Caltech was the second one, and ironically, Harvey Mudd was the third. So, of course, I then had to debate when, when I got into these three places where I was going to go. Um, USC, I crossed off the list right away. And, and I joked this with a lot of people in my family because, say, my mother actually went to USC. She actually got a master's degree from there. But I was just never impressed by the campus. You know, I had done a couple of summer programs there. I could see that the professors there weren't really that interested in working with kids from the neighborhood. And, you know, of course, I grew up like five, 10 minutes away from USC. And, and seeing that, unfortunately, with a couple of professors, that, that made a difference. You know, that, yeah. that really, really kind of hit home. Um, Caltech, on the other hand, I still have my acceptance letter to this day. Like, I mean, the, the, the <laughs> yeah. fact that I got into Caltech, like that was one of the happiest days of my life. Um, and when I, when I got into Harvey Mudd, I really had to debate which school should I go to. And, and I, I think it is ironic that I'm back here at the Claremont Colleges because I remember having a serious debate, which school should I go to? Should it be Caltech? Should it be Harvey Mudd? So at the time, I looked up in a brochure, how many black students are there at Harvey Mudd and how many black students are there at Caltech? That for me was a real serious issue. Um, and I could see that the numbers were pretty much zero. You know, I can't remember at the time how many students there were at either school, but I can tell you that we're talking probably like 20 at most. There might've even been like five to 10 that were listed in the brochure. Yeah. Um, 
So I decided, you know, if, if I'm really going to have a lonely experience, screw it. Might as well be at Caltech. <laughs> so so that, that's really one, that's really the, the reason why I ended up. Ended so up what, was the, what was it like there for you? You know, I have to say it, it was a mixed experience. Um, in terms of academics, I don't know if I could have found a better fit than, than Caltech. Um, when I got there, of course, I wanted to major in physics. Uh, it's, it's kind of a running joke at Caltech that almost everybody that starts at Caltech says that they want to major in physics. But, you know, you, you have a long history of Caltech really being one of the top schools in the world when it comes to physics. Um, I didn't know about a lot of these names at the time, but you know, Richard Feynman, you know, this very famous physicist, he was there at Caltech mm -hmm. for a very long time. He had passed away maybe two years before I got there. He was mm -hmm. well known for teaching freshman physics every single year. Um, one of the people who invented the term quarks, Murray Gell-Mann, he was actually a visiting professor there for several years when I was there. So, you know, Caltech was just very much in the, the, the psyche of everyone who really wanted to do physics. And so to be at Caltech really meant that you wanted to be a physicist. Um, I'm also really happy with the classes that I had taken because even now, the way that I teach my math classes is very heavily influenced by what I saw as an undergraduate. And I just remember seeing like a lot of crazy crossovers. So like in math classes, they would talk about physics problems and how you can kind of solve all of these physics problems by using fancy math. I had a calculus instructor named Tom Apostle, who actually was a number theorist. And I'll get back to that connection in just a second. But Apostle actually worked very closely with the physics department when it came to math education. He did this series of videos called Project Mathematics. And at the time it was groundbreaking. There were computer animations that he would have to showcase different, different ideas in math and how they applied to physics. And he started working on these videos in like 1985, you know, I mean, something very, very early. Now, one of the things that he spent a couple of lectures talking about in the honors calculus class was the whole thing about the invention of calculus. And a lot of this came down to the motions of the planets. So for example, he would say that Johannes Kepler really wanted to know about the motions of the planets. There wasn't a lot of politics that I guess Kepler was interested in, in the sense of um, like, is the universe really centered around the earth? That is, you know, do things kind of do the planets and the stars orbit around the earth? He was more interested in this idea that the planets and stars orbited around the sun but what he really wanted to know was what's happening in terms of the numbers he was seeing. So he realized things such as the length of the orbit. So for example, we orbit the sun every roughly 365 days. The lengths of the orbits somehow matched up with how far away the planets were away from the sun. But it was actually more than that. The time of the seasons changed depending upon the different times of the year. So, you know, we might say that in some sense, the earth is actually passing, passing faster when it's closer to the sun and it's kind of moving slower when it's further away from the sun. And, you know, these are things that no one really talks about in popular culture much these days, but apparently this was a big deal in the days of Kepler. This was perplexing mathematicians for a long time. And apparently at some point, there was a young kid by the name of Isaac Newton who saw all of this data and he said, I'm going to figure it all out. So he went away for a little bit 
he invented something called calculus, but he did it so he could explain what Kepler was seeing with this data. So once he was able to explain it, he then kind of showed there's this cool application of this thing called calculus that explains all of it. So nowadays we call these Kepler's laws of motion, but the reality is Kepler could only explain it using data. He really couldn't explain why it was true. It was really Newton and the invention of calculus. They could explain all of this. Well, I saw all this for the first time in my calculus class. And I remember being fascinated hearing like the story of the history and the physics behind it. This was in calculus. My instructor was explaining all of the physics. But at the end of the day, he said, it's math that does it. It's math that explains it, really. That's where I ch changed my mindset from being a physics major to being a math major. It was really in this calculus class, kind of seeing how mathematics can explain the physics is what totally did it for me. And remember, up to this point, I wanted to understand the world around me. You know, I wasn't so much interested in like math or physics or chemistry. It was what can I do to help understand how the world around me goes. And it all happened right there in my calculus class. So, so I would say that, you know, that, that Caltech really influenced me in terms of how I saw things, how I teach things. Even now, when I talk to students, um, I really like to kind of blend the math and the physics and the chemistry, kind of all of it together. Because to me, it's just explaining how the world around you works. Um, but I say that, that on the one hand, Caltech really influenced me um, when it came to the academics. But on the other hand, when it came to the social aspects of life, it, it, was, it was a very frustrating and in some ways depressing place. Um, at the time, there were around 200 freshmen that came in. So there were just under 800 undergraduates there on campus. There were about maybe another 1,000 graduate students, but not more than 2,000 students total on the whole campus. So it feels very much like Pomona. Um, of the 200 freshmen, my year, there were 14 Black students. They told me that this was the largest number of Black students Caltech had ever had coming in in its freshman class. I think the year before that, there were maybe eight. And I think the year before that, there were like two. So, so we, mm -hmm. we were a very large group. But all of this is kind of relative. You know, when you take a look in general, there were really no other Black students on campus which meant that it was really hard to kind of find friends, to find community, to do um, much of anything. Um, even for women, I believe that we had, well, what we called at the time the ratio. There were, I wanna say maybe eight men for every one woman that was on campus. So, so I mean, there really were no women at all. Um, yeah. I hear that nowadays the Caltech is much, much better. I think that it's sitting at about 50% women that are there coming in in the freshman class. And I know that this year they have the largest freshman class of black students ever, which is sitting at something like 20 or so. I mean, so I, I think the things have, have gotten a lot better. But at the time in 1990, when I started, you know, it, it was a very, very depressing place. Um, I'll, I'll just tell one little story just to kind of say like, in, in some sense, how frustrating it was. Um, at the time, there, there was this brand new form of music that was kind of hitting the scenes known as rap music. I guess nowadays the kids call it hip hop. And um, it, it was a very controversial art form. You know, not, not a lot of people played it. And I remember in particular, MTV refused to play rap videos. I mean, it, in the early 90s, you could not find rap anywhere. A lot of stations wouldn't play it. The radio stations wouldn't play it. The TV stations definitely would not play it. If you wanted to hear any rap at all, it all had to be underground. You had to hope you could get some radio station out of Santa Monica that was playing something at 2 o'clock Saturday morning. But otherwise, it was nearly impossible to find anything. 
there were a couple of times when my friends and I would go to parties on campus and we would ask the DJ, will they play rap music? I remember this one time in particular, I went in with a tape that I had that I've spent a long time trying to find it at the local Tower Records. And I asked the guy to play it. And the guy said, well, what kind of music is, is it? I said, it's rap. I said, no, I'm not going to play this. And I remember my friends and I were really depressed that we couldn't get anything played. So we actually decided we were going to throw our own parties. So I remember that we had this one summer program where it, it was mostly minority kids that were there, you know, black and Latino kids that were there for about six weeks or so. And at one point, um, I just got so frustrated at finding DJs who were willing to play rap music. I myself DJed the whole party. And I mean, it, it was a totally crazy experience that, you know, I had to have like all of my tapes together and had to figure out between like two cassette players, how am I going to play this music and kind of, you know, like mix from one song to the next song. Like it, it's nothing like nowadays, we can kind of pull up everything on a laptop, you kind of like click on an MP3 and it plays, you know, I, I didn't even have two turntables, I had like two cassette players trying to go back and forth playing all of this and it was for a party of like 60 students in the room, but that, that was a surreal experience. But, but still, you know, I mean, that this is things that we did to kind of help establish that sense of community at Caltech. So it, 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 was, it was good at some times, it was frustrating at other times, but I, I still feel in general really fortunate for that experience. Idris, you, you said you found kind of your love for mathematics through your undergraduate experience. You later on went to Stanford for your PhD. Right. At, at what point did you... Um, Found, find your interest or love for, um, for academics and for teaching? I think I always had a love for academics, at least I know freshman year is, is when, when I really had found a love for academics. Um, I think of the same way, I also found a real disdain for academia. And, and unfortunately, there, there's, there's a big difference. Um, my love for academics comes from the fact that I really love just to learn. And I, I learned that I could talk to other students. I could talk to some faculty. I could just learn about a lot of things. And so from a very early age, um, I'll say roughly probably 12 years old, I knew that I wanted to, to get this thing called a PhD. I had no idea what it meant to get a PhD, but I knew that it was something I wanted to do because I always had this love for learning. And I remember asking around when I was at that age, what careers could I have where I could just spend the rest of my life learning? And people told me, well, you have to be a professor. But to be a professor, you have to get a PhD. So I said, fine. In order for me to be a professor, I'm going to get my PhD. And that's, that's what I'll do. So I knew from a very early age that, that just learning was something that I wanted to do. Um, I think when I was in grad school, I was very fortunate in that I had a lot of friends from many, many different departments on campus. And I mean, literally, you name the department, I had a friend in that department. Um, for a while, I was president of the Black Graduate Students Association, which probably had about 400 members or so. Um, there were almost exactly 100 Black doctoral students at Stanford, which meant almost exactly 50 women and 50 men. And so there were people from every department, you know, I mean, people from the med school, from the business school, from the law school. I had friends in geology and chemistry, women's studies, the history department. I mean, really, you name the department, I had friends in that department. And that's when I think I gained an appreciation of the whole college experience, 
you know, up to that point, I think I had been more focused in maybe science or learning physics and mathematics. But that's when I really gained this appreciation for, no, it, it's all connected. You know, it's not just about doing STEM or about doing science. It's really just in general about kind of the whole college experience and learning what it's like to, to be in academia. I think in the same way, I also saw a lot of the negative sides as well. So I did see a little bit of um, how some professors can be very negative, how they can um, make students' lives miserable. I definitely had run-ins with different professors that did not take me seriously. Um, like, you know, when I was in grad school, certainly I was not told about any of the studies groups that were going on. I didn't even know that they were happening until one of my friends asked me about four months into my first year at Stanford, how can you not come into the study groups? I said, what study groups? So, you know, he just happened to tell me that they were going on. So then that's when I eventually learned that I wasn't being invited. So I tried to go a little bit more. So, you know, so I, I did see a lot of the negative things that could happen, which is why I'm always sympathetic when I see that, that there are good parts and bad parts of, of being in college. And, and it's not gonna be, you know, like this complete grand, great experience for everybody. That, that it could be different things for, for different people. And even now, I, I try, to, try to keep that in mind. But I'll, I'll say that this idea of being at a liberal arts, I think that always stuck with me from when I was in grad school. I had so much fun having friends in the humanities. It was something I never saw at Caltech, you know, other than the, kind of the work I did in the history department. Most of what I saw as an undergraduate were entirely in STEM. But now seeing this brand new experience of the possibility of being a professor when you don't necessarily have to do science all day was something I never thought about, but it was something that really fascinated. Um, let's uh, move into uh, your your work as a mathematician. It's one of those things that's kind of hard for for us to, to do much with on a, on a general podcast because I know it's a you know, you're at a level where it, it, there's a lot of preparation that has to go into understanding the things that you're you're working with. But um, can you uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about the areas you specialize in, number theory and algebraic geometry, and it, mm -hmm. are the two that I that we mentioned? I know there are others. Um, can you tell tell us a little bit of what attracted you to those areas in particular? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll try my best here. Um... Well, the, the quick story that I'll give is when I was a freshman, um, I mentioned that I was taking honors calculus with Tom Apostle. And Tom Apostle himself was a number theorist. Well, he never really talked about number theory when he taught calculus. And he was mostly talking about physics and history and what have you. But one day he mentioned that there was going to be a Caltech alum who was going to be giving a talk on campus. And he thought it would be really great if the undergraduates went to go hear his talk. You know, he didn't really say much about what it was or about who this guy was. He just said, well, just, just try to go to the top. Um, at the time, because I was trying to learn more about this whole thing of mathematics that, you know, if you're growing up in South Central LA, you're not going to know anything about like what a number theorist is or algebraic geometer was. Yes. I would go to the bookstore all the time just to look at titles of books. And there were two books in particular whose titles caught my attention. One was one that said, um, I believe it was an introduction to number theory. I had never heard the phrase number theory before. You know, it's just bizarre to me. How can you have a whole theory of numbers? But, you know, but, but here it was. Yeah. But the author of the book looked familiar. The author was Harold Stark, 
who was the same person that Tom Apostle told me, go see his talk. So I had seen this book. I figured it must be fate or something. So, you know, so I'm seeing this book here in the bookstore and decided to go to the guy's talk. I probably understood the first 15 minutes and didn't understand any of the rest of it after that. But he was talking about some really cool ideas. Like, uh, let me see if I can kind of give you a flavor of things that he was mentioning. So a lot of us um, hear about the so-called Pythagorean triple. So things like three, four, five triangle. And what that really means is three squared plus four squared equals five squared. Now, one thing I'd like to tell the students that I work with over the summers is when you hear this kind of equation, there should be two questions that come to mind. Number one, are there more examples like this one? And some people in high school might hear of things like a 5, 12, 13 triangle. So, you know, 5 squared plus 12 squared is 13 squared. Maybe you might hear of an 8, 15, 17 triangle. So you start to write down more examples, but then the second question should come in, which is, can you write down the formula that will generate all of these? So I was more interested in the latter, because I realized that you could probably write a computer program that could help you find a few examples, but how do you know with a mathematical proof that you've actually gotten all examples? I became completely obsessed with this. And, and one thing I'm almost embarrassed to say is in reading Harold Stark's book, he showed a method of how you can actually write down all possible solutions, how you can actually write down the formula for these. And I just fell in love with this whole concept, like that there's, you can prove that you have all solutions. So what I used to do every single week is I would post on my dorm room door the equations that I could find that week where I found all solutions. So like the equations of the week, I would like, you know, write down 10 equations where I could find all solutions. Even at Caltech, people would kind of scribble back these notes, like, you know, saying, oh, this guy is a nerd. But, but I totally <laughs> fell in love with it. So Just you were a nerd day. even at Caltech? Even at Caltech. <laughs> but every single week, that was my thing, freshman year. I would put up on the board outside of my door, equation that I've solved this week. Um, you know, I, I was a little bit embarrassed to tell people that I was really in love with number theory because I was a physicist. You know, I was at the school based at the Richard Feynman book. <laughs> And I wasn't going to be one of these lowly mathematicians that was just talking about these silly <laughs> equations. I was supposed to talk about how the universe worked and about black holes and quarks and all the rest of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was a closeted mathematician for the first few years. <laughs> I, would I would tell people I was a physics major, but then I would quietly say that, that I was still you know, really in love with math. But more specifically, I was really in love with number theory. I just love so, this whole concept that you could say with proof that now you found all integer solutions to this very specific equation. So when did you come out of the closet? <laughs> um, second year of graduate school. Yeah, I, I'm embarrassed to say that, yes, I went to grad school in mathematics, but I did it at Stanford, where I knew I could jump over to the physics department. And I was still <laughs> taking classes in the physics department my, my first couple of years. You were, yeah, you were just keeping a foot in in the door in, in case you came to your senses and went that back is, to. <laughs> that is exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, so yeah. See, you you mentioned earlier that um, uh -huh. your yeah, I can't remember if it was your mom or dad who were worried, quote unquote, that you were too nerdy and, and involved you in flag football. What were they thinking now that you were, you know, nerdy at Caltech and, and nerdy at Stanford? Oh, I, I don't really know if they, they really knew the, the whole story. Yeah. You know, I would always come home. It would always be a discussion about like, the classes I was doing or maybe me saying that I have to go to do research on campus that summer. But, but I never really talked about 
like what my interests were outside of the classes and, and the other things. Um, and I think even now, you know, it's really hard for me to kind of almost in a sense justify doing mathematics because I, I really feel that um, there's a lot of societal issues that, that are out there. And, and kind of at the end of the day, me being self-indulgent, dealing with numbers and this kind of thing isn't really going to solve the world's problems. I think that there are mathematicians out there who are doing things to solve the world's problems, but I can't say that the research that I'm doing would, would be one of them. So, so I, I do go back and forth. You know, yes, there are things that I try to do to help build the community and help make the world a better place, but I'm one of the first ones to say that I think there is a lot of mathematics, including the stuff that I do, that's, that's just very self-indulgent. You know, so it's, it's things that I enjoy doing, but, but I mean, really, it's at the end of the day, it's something that I personally enjoy. It's for the beauty of it, right? It, it is, it is. It's, it's the beauty, it's the simplicity. Um, you know, I, I was going to mention that, that I definitely got into algebraic geometry because it, it involves two words that I think a lot of people know, algebra and geometry. Um, and, and what I like about it is that it combines a lot of ideas. So I'm not necessarily going to say that it's a lot of mathematics, but there's a lot of philosophy that goes behind all of this. Um, so what, what I work on these days really combines a lot of different areas. So um, yes, I do like geometry, which means that I deal with a lot of really weird geometry. This is even something that you see in physics. So you might say that the world that we live in is flat. I mean, literally, you might say like that we live on the planet Earth. And I know that there's some people who believe that the Earth is flat, but there's other of us, of us who believe that the Earth is round. And you can even argue, well, it's not a perfectly spherical shape. It's a little bit of like ellipsoidal. But the point is that these are all different kinds of shapes. Well, in physics, you actually would argue that a lot of modern physics says that the universe that we live in is some kind of weird, curved, warped type of universe. That the space that we live in isn't necessarily a flat space. You know, think of it as like if you're kind of moving your hand through air, it's not saying that it's just uniform air, but it's almost like, you know, if you kind of put your hand in a bucket of water, kind of like, you know, swim around in a pool, that as you transition from the air to the liquid, things change. You can actually feel the viscosity and how things change. Same thing happens in the universe, you know, that, that the type of universe that we live in is going to move and curve and move around in different kinds of ways. So even in geometry, it's not as simple as what you see on a daily basis, that things are going to be a little bit weird and a little bit strange. So you can ask yourself, like, if you're taking the typical geometry class back in high school, so this might be draw lines and kind of look at triangles and ask yourself, like, with the ruler and compass, what kind of things can you come up with? Well, now, what happens if the sheet of paper that you're working with is curved? Maybe, like, you've kind of now tried to mat it out onto the surface of a bowling ball. Now, what if you tried to draw lines or try to take a look at angles? You know, now everything that you learn in high school is going to be completely different. Things are going to be very, very strange. That's one of the things that I like to work in. So trying your best to kind of understand geometry, but now what if things are curved in a very bizarre way? In the same sense, there's algebra. And in algebra, some of this starts with what we are used to in high school. So it could be the idea first of arithmetic. So, you know, kind of adding numbers together, multiplying numbers together. But then eventually we go from arithmetic to algebra. So now let's say trying to solve for X, looking at solutions to quadratic equations. Well, when you have algebra, there are different kinds of algebra. You know, a lot of our undergraduate students have to take linear algebra. 
So this is a kind of algebra where now you're not just solving for X as a number, you might be solving for X as a matrix or as a vector. So now you're generalizing different types of algebra. And we hope that students will be interested enough to take the next sequence in algebra, which is abstract algebra. And so now you're completely abstracting all of these concepts. Well, this is again, something that I like to work with. So now kind of abstracting algebra to the point that things become really, really crazy. So if you're dealing with the integers, what's an abstraction of the integers? If you're dealing with the rational numbers, what's an abstraction of that? Um, and then there's a way to combine all of this together, which is really hard to explain, but this is the concept of algebraic geometry. So there should be a way that you're looking at geometry and looking at algebra, almost one and the same. And, and I, I will admit that when I was a freshman, I saw these two words on a book when I was there at the Caltech bookstore. And I thought, well, this will be easy reading because I know algebra, I know geometry. So algebra and geometry can't be that bad. And I remember opening the book and I saw a lot of really pretty pictures and I thought this was great. Tried to read it, made no sense. No sense at all. Um, and that was a challenge. That, that was a challenge. I, I'll, I'll actually, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this. I purchased a copy of that book freshman year, and I said, one day I will understand this book. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually understand it until after I received tenure, <laughs> after being yeah. a professor for about seven years. I, I can imagine, yeah. yeah uh, the, I, you know, in, in look at your resume, you know, there aren't many words <laughs> that jump out at me as a non-mathematician, but one of them did, and that's origami. And, right. and it was, I, I was curious about whether there's something in, in that, that that could help lay people like us, you know, understand a little better what you're dealing with. Well, let's, let's try. Um, unfortunately, mathematicians like to kind of use the same words over and over again. So, so there are actually two types of origami that, that are out there. One is um, the one that most people are used to, which is you take a sheet of paper, you try your best to kind of fold it, you know, like this Japanese paper folding idea. Um, and th there are a lot of mathematicians out there that are working on the concept of origami. Um, one of the first names that comes to mind is a professor named Eric Demain, who is at MIT. And he's actually well known even in the physics world these days, because you have questions such as, um, how do you actually do origami in real life? So for example, I know that NASA is very interested in origami because what they like to do is um, a lot of their spacecraft needs to have solar panels in order to be powered. And of course, to have a solar panel, you actually need a lot of surface area. Like, you know, say, think about the roof in your house. You know, the larger roof you have, the more solar panels and the more electricity you can get coming into your home. Well, as you might imagine, you don't want a spacecraft that has this huge solar panel as it's lifting off from the Earth. So what you'd like for it to do is maybe be in a very small enclosed area. And then once it gets into outer space or maybe once it goes to Mars, let's say, then somehow it can unfurl and you'll have a nice big, big solar panel where it could take in a lot of energy, a lot of electricity, and then it'll work just fine. Well, one of the questions is, how do you get a solar panel that will have a really big surface area, but fit that into a really, really small space? Mm -hmm. That means you need paper folding. You need origami in order to do this. Yeah. So th this is like a fascinating question that some mathematicians are working on. You know, mm -hmm. this whole concept of paper folding, but now you have a very specific application to space travel. Unfortunately, what I work on isn't isn't as lofty. You know, it's it's, it's a little bit more down to earth. 
Um, here, I'm working on a different kind of origami that actually relates various branches of mathematics. So yes, it is part of algebraic geometry, but uh, maybe some of the listeners will know about this. It also relates in topology, differential geometry, some group theory. There's like a lot of different branches of math where all of this comes into play. The origami that I'm thinking of, you can almost in a sense go like this. Um, start with, let's say a square sheet of paper. And now I'm going to do the following. Take the square sheet of paper and let's say that you make a whole bunch of copies of it. So let's say maybe you make 10 copies. Well, once I have these 10 copies, I'm going to glue together various edges of these different 10 copies of that sheet of paper based on a certain rule. And the rule depends upon what I might feel like at the start of the day. So it could be that, um, you know, for a very specific rule, I'm going to say, all right, now try your best to kind of glue these edges in this specific fashion. And once you do that, at the end, you're going to have some shape. And that shape is what I'm calling an origami. I now, see. one of the shapes that you could get could be this idea of what's called the torus, or you can think of it as like a donut. Maybe I just start with one sheet of paper. And now I'm going to say, well, why don't you glue the top edge and the bottom edge together? And why don't you glue, glue the left edge and the right edge together? Well, if you glue the top and bottom edges, that'll form a cylinder. It'll form a tube. And then as you kind of glue the left edge and the right edge together, you're kind of gluing the two circular ends of the tube together. And now you have a torus. You have, you know, one of these, these donuts. Well, that would be one type of origami. You know, that now what I have is the sheet of paper I'm trying to glue. There are different types of origami that, that you'll get. And, and this is where kind of the whole thing gets a little bit crazy. Um, I'm not gonna remember exactly, but there's um, one type of object that you get that I think is called, oh, I'm gonna say I'm not gonna remember the name here. Um, it, it, something like the three-headed platypus. I'm, I'm not gonna remember exactly, it's some <laughs> really bizarre name. Yeah. But the point is that this thing, you kind of glue it together in such a bizarre way that you get this really weird looking object. Mm -hmm. But mathematically, you can study this object. Yeah. And, you know, I, I am very interested in these types of things because, again, this is the geometry. So this is where you have kind of the shapes. But also there's the algebra. It turns out that in gluing all of this together, there is a certain set of automorphisms. There's a certain set of symmetries that I have with this that gives me these very beautiful ideas. So I actually plan to work with a group of students this summer where we're actually going to focus on these types of origami. So what I want them to do is let's say, we're gonna have sheets of paper, we're gonna talk about these various gluing rules, we'll try to glue all of this together, and I wanna know if I can hold this in my hand, what will this look like? I don't know at all how this is gonna go, but I've been thinking about maybe using like 3D printers or 3D mathematicaling software, um, some kind of things where I can actually see what these things are going to look like. So it isn't so much origami in the sense of paper folding. It's more origami in the sense of now you're kind of paper gluing. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Drew, can you tell us about some of the classes you're teaching this spring or some of the classes you've been teaching at Pomona? Let's see, mostly I've been trying to teach linear algebra, so Math 60, um, and that, that's actually been a really fun class. Um, I definitely have made it a very complicated, difficult class. But what I've tried to do is emphasize that math isn't just about arithmetic. So it's not about playing around with numbers, being able to do a computation. 
I'm totally convinced that Pomona students are brilliant enough that they can do computations. You know, once I kind of tell you what to do, just a matter of sit down with a calculator or computer, you can do it. I like to use that class to talk about mathematical logic. So one of the first questions I typically ask in this class is, say that you make a claim of something. Let's say that you fundamentally believe that it's true. Go ahead and prove it to me. So, so, like, so what does that mean? How do you convince someone of a certain mathematical concept? So we spend a lot of time in that class going over a proof, going over a rigorous proof. Um, what I like about that class is that the students who have taken it with me rise up to the challenge. And we don't have math majors that are in this class. Some, I think, are students that have like, placed out of calculus and so they want to try something new. Others, um, maybe they're computer science majors. Some of them I know are economics majors. But what I love about this class is that students are very interested in really trying to say mathematically, how do you prove something? How do you convince someone of a certain concept? So, so for me, linear algebra, Math 60, is one, one of the most fun classes that, that I've had to teach. Um, other classes that I've taught would be um, abstract algebra. I believe that's 171. I've taught kind of like a sequence of classes after that. So this will be Galois theory. And this semester, I'm teaching kind of an even further sequence from there, um, algebra geometry, you know, the area that, that I work in. Um, Next semester, I'm hoping to branch out a little bit and then teach what's called real analysis. So this is actually building on one of the classes that I'm teaching this semester, which is introduction to analysis, Math 101, which is one of these speaking intensive classes. Um, so the hope next semester is to kind of build on that. I'm really hoping that some students that are in the speaking intensive class will continue along with that class. Um, next semester, I'm oh, sorry, I should say at the spring a year from now, so spring of 2021, I'm really looking forward to teaching differential equations. So I did teach it before at my previous job, but what I'm hoping to do now is really combine all of my knowledge of math and physics all together into one class. So I'm kind of hoping to go back to what inspired me to go into academia, but now do it with the students here. So to really say, yes, you could talk about kind of like the numbers and how to do all of this mathematically, but what does this really mean for the world around you? Like, for example, um, a lot of what's happening nowadays in the age of COVID-19 comes down to looking at these mathematical models. So trying your best to figure out, you know, can you predict the spread of a disease? Can you predict how many people are going to eventually get infected? This all comes down to something that we would do in this differential equations class. So like the question would be, how do you come up with these models? How do you actually know that some of these things are correct? Can you actually use this to even influence policy on when we should have like shelter in home, when should we should have safer at home. And it all comes down to things that mathematicians are doing. Um, I myself have actually been really talking with a lot of my friends who are in some of these modeling communities to kind of see what types of mathematical equations are they using? What are some of the differential equations that they're using? And what I would love to do is use a class like this differential equations class to actually say, here's how you can do this stuff in real life, in real time. You know, it all comes down to just these mathematical formulas. But you know, but these are things that you can actually do in a class. You don't have to be some hardcore researcher sitting in a lab somewhere. You can be an undergraduate, you know, really taking this math class, but actually seeing what's happening with the numbers, even doing your best to predict what government should do. So um, I'm sorry to say we're out of time. So uh, on that note, we're gonna wrap this up. Uh, we've been talking with Edre Goins, professor of mathematics, Thanks, Edre. This was fun. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That was great. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.